Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems. But getting therapy has its own problems, too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and, of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable, too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Hello there, and welcome to the Untitled Film Podcast with Callum and Johnny. I'm Johnny. And I'm Callum. And this is a very special episode. Is it particularly special compared to the other episodes? I'm going to say it is. This week we will be talking about music... Biopics? I guess, although one is negligible, whether you call it a biopic or not. Well... One, one could almost be a musical. It could be. And, and the other one, well, I don't want to spoil what we're going to talk about. So let's, uh, let's, let's save that. But biopics is probably the best word that we can use at Mus- the moment. Musical biopics. Yes. Anywho, uh, that is the films, things that we're going to be talking about this should, week. Should we mention what films they are? Shall we? Should we? Oh, we might as well. Maybe this is the thing, like it. like Conan did once. Conan was like, because obviously the thing with Conan, they always have the ding 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 ding. Hi, I'm Jason Bateman, and I'm going to be trying to be Conan. I'm no, I'm feeling, and I'm Conan's best pal, frothy about being Conan's best. Pal. That thing, and then Conan once was like. Well, we don't want to ruin the surprise if he was on the episode. And they were like, you, we literally tell you at the start of the episode. <laughs> and it tells you on the title of the podcast. And they were like, oh, yeah. Well, so I feel like we might as well just we say. We might as well. And it's, it is going to be the title. It so is. we're going to be talking about the new-ish Baz Luhrmann film, Elvis, about Elvis Costello. Yeah, everyone loves Elvis Costello. He is really cool. He's pretty with awesome. His, with we, his glasses and his songs. We're a big fan of Elvis Costello in this house. Yeah. Not so big fans of Tom Hanks, but... No, no. And uh, yeah, in the Elvis Costello movie, that Tom Hanks. Whoa. I know, he plays Liza Minnelli. I know, it's a pretty radical casting choice, I'll give him that. <laughs> it really is, but I think he hams it up a little bit too much. And we're also going to be talking about Love and Mercy, which is about the creation of Rubber Soul. Exactly. And the, the war between John Lennon and Paul McCartney. It's an exciting film. It really is. Who knew that Paul Dano could pull off a Liverpudlian accent? I know, but it makes sense picking someone called Paul to play someone called Paul. But he plays John. No. Yeah. He, John yeah, Cusack does. plays John, because he's called John. Ah, that makes sense. That makes sense. Come on, Callum, get it right. I mean, the age, the age <laughs> difference is a bit weird. Yeah, like, but I think they, 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 they're such good actors. I don't think you should cast for age or race or gender. You should just cast Just cast for, the right people for the right Yeah, roles. and I think they do such a good job of it that it... Anyway, we don't want to review the films too much before well, yes. we get into them. And should them. we stop messing the audience around? I think they're smart enough to know... To that get it, what's going on. Yeah. Let's hope so. <laughs> Dear Untitled Film Podcast, it wasn't about Elvis Costello at all. I'm unsubscribing. Yours sincerely, a tit. <laughs> Yours sincerely, dog brain videos. <laughs> anyway, uh, good thing that Paul Dano's liver puddly accent's better than your northern accent. <laughs> 
That wasn't really a, an attempt at a northern accent. It was just a whiny accent. Well, uh, you've just uh, called everyone in the north whiny then. So <laughs> well done, Callum. Well Damn. done. Yes. Anyway, on from Callum slandering half the country uh, to let's talk about the thing that we use to get our message out to the world that's other than the podcast itself. Yes. So you can find us on Instagram and Facebook on untitled film podcast one word and we're also on youtube now so please do you know like and subscribe to the youtube channel go to our instagram page send us a message like a bunch of our stuff comment on the videos Com- yeah comment on anything that we post and uh, if you're a uh, a spam bot please stop uh, t- giving us messages like promote it here promote it here but if you are one of the other podcasts that follows us that follow for follow and then um, welcome, and we will enjoy listening to your podcast too. And let's collab. Yes, and thank you for for um, liking our stuff. Thank you for uh, joining our Instagram page. Uh, it's been really cool to see new people joining and getting on board. Uh, so thank you, thank you to everyone who has liked, subscribed, joined, messaged, and comment. The... And we do read the comments out, and we do start discussions and things based on them. Absolutely, as Dog Brain Videos found out last week with our Scooby Doo inspired. Much to his message. dismay. Wow. I think he liked it. <laughs> Anywho. Um, yeah. On from that, we are going into a segment. And before we do that, I'm just going to turn Kyle's microphone off. No! We're going to talk about the news. No. They can't hear me. I promise I won't do that anymore. No, we need to make sure the levels are right. I've turned you back on. I can't hear. Oh, the, ow. <laughs> there we go. Yeah. He's back. If, if people couldn't hear that, it's because it went a bit too loud and it was shouting in my ear. Anywho, <laughs> if, um, you can start with your first piece of news, if okay, you'd well, like. Yes. The, I mean, it has to be said that uh, this week is a little bit of a slow week. And whenever it's a little bit of a slow week, Johnny or I tends to talk about box office and... This week's exciting box office news is that Avatar has finally been dethroned as the number one film, at least in the United States. And there are two films. It's now number three. So the two new films to come out is M. Night Shyamalan's Knock at the Cabin and the film 80 for Brady, which I think is going to be a lot more of an American thing because it's about the uh, football, the American, big American football star Tom Brady. And uh, both films have performed sort of okay. They're soft middling, but they they only have a budget of twenty million for Knock and I think twenty eight million for Eighty for Brady. And they've opened. They've both opened to around fourteen to thirteen million, which I think both films were probably hoping for more. But in the end, when all is said and done, they'll probably both break even. So nothing to write home about this week in terms of box office news. But at least Avatar is finding no longer hogging that number one top spot mm. uh, what an interesting piece of news there. it's so interesting i'm, I'm so sorry um, <laughs> but it's february you... and there's not a lot going on right now well i beg to differ oh yeah so rewind a few months and i was complaining <laughs> about don't make noises that's me rewinding uh, i was complaining about disney um cancelling lots of marvel tv shows um, there was a bit of Kevin Feige pushed the head of TV out and there was a lot of things that um, certainly hadn't been announced as renewed and a lot of speculation about cancellations. One of those things was Hitmonkey, which I really, really enjoyed with Jason Sudeikis playing a, uh, a dead assassin guiding a snow monkey through kind of his revenge, I suppose. Um, and the first series was really good, frankly. <laughs> it was very funny. It was very satirical very gory and interesting. It's something kind of a bit out of the main Marvel mould, which was all very family-friendly cooker-cutter. And Hulu have just announced a second season of it. Oh, good. Good, good, good. So announced 18 months after the original came out, which definitely shows warning signs and that it maybe wasn't coming back at one point, but some decision seems to have been reversed and Hitmonkey's coming back. So whether it had a, I don't know if it maybe had good streaming numbers on Disney Plus or what the reasoning behind it is, but that's that's good to see. It is pretty good. That's good news. Good I'm, news. I'm, I'm, I'm glad to hear about that. Indeed. Because we don't want to, it's so common now for new television 
to be lost media. Like, you know how back in the day there would be uh, episodes of Doctor Who that would be lost to time because people record over the masters because they never thought that anybody is going to watch yeah. Doctor Who 50 years down the line. Or, or, no, or Dad's Armies. And then someone finds like a really old, dodgy recording of it and they try and splice it back together to and, and see, relive the glory days of and the past. that was sort of expected. But now we're living in an age where a new cartoon or a new TV show can be here today and completely erased. I mean, the fact that Minx only barely by the skin of its teeth got saved is just a, such a shocking indictment on how streaming services today are working. I mean, I don't want to go off into too big of a tangent, but Netflix are starting to burn all their bridges by stopping the uh, password sharing, and the people are very annoyed about that. But anyway, that is a tangent. Uh, my second bit of news, there is going to be an adaptation of a Stephen King book, and it's going to be produced by J.J. Um, Abrams' Bad Robots and Leonardo DiCaprio's Appian Way. And what tends to happen is that these production companies, they snatch up every sort of best-selling book going with the inkling, the thoughts that maybe somewhere down the line, four or five years from now, J.J. Abrams might direct, mm-hmm. Leonardo DiCaprio might star, but what will probably happen is that they'll both get too busy. They'll the both, rights will lapse. The rights will lapse. And if it is made, they'll stay on as producers and it'll be cast with someone else. And J.J. Yeah. Abrams, you know, he'll be a producer in the way that, yep, green light, cool, go for it. Well, that. it'll be a bit of like a clover, 10 Cloverfield Lane kind of situation probably where they'll go, yeah, let's just get made this, sell it to Netflix or yeah. whatever. Yeah. yeah, stick Godzilla in that. That that will make itself. What you didn't say is which of Stephen King's books it is that they're No, I didn't. Adapting. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> um, I know he churns 17 out a year. but and This one is Billy Summers. Apparently, uh, according to it. some of the comments, it's a bit of a Jack Reacher clone. So it's more action, less horror. So it's more, and I think that probably wow. appeals to a fading and aging movie star like like Leonardo DiCaprio who wants to have his Tom Cruise moment. I mean, that's what everyone wants to see, a Jack Reacher-style TV show or or film starring an ageing playboy um, (laughs) by a horror writer. By a horror writer directed by the guy who did the Star Trek reboot. And Star Wars. The interesting... Yes, and Star Wars. Um, Anything Star reboot. Yes, about it is that one of the screenwriters is they've deadline has uh, said ed zwick oops sorry banging the table wow callum can you stop hitting the microphone <laughs> you always do this <laughs> but ed zwick, but they don't say edward zwick because edward zwick of course try saying that very fast is the director of a whole bunch of movies like glory and the 90s and you know a lot of big movies from from the 90s i think he's nominated at least for a couple of oscars but they don't. I'm not sure if it's someone else because I tried to look on IMDb to see if there was in, like a Edward Zwick, Edzwick sort of thing. But I think it might be the same guy, which seems like a bit of a downgrade for an Oscar-nominated director to be writing a subpar uh, Stephen King book, possibly for Leonardo DiCaprio somewhere down the line. He seems like he should be directing, maybe directing it himself. But anyway, uh, maybe Edzwick has fallen out of fashion in Hollywood. Defiance didn't do banging box office numbers i know that or maybe he's writing it on plane journeys in between doing directing roles hopefully because i like ed swick and i he sort of deserves better he directs the last samurai for example you know i like Mm. that film yeah fair enough and my last piece of news this week is there is a new exciting sitcom called nothing forever Okay. Have you heard about this? No, 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 I have not. It is a spin-off of the hit 90s show, Seinfeld. Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> and it is the world's first AI-produced TV show. Oh, I have heard about this. I it, didn't realise that was the title. Yeah, it's being shown on Twitch, uh, and it is, it's produced by machine learning, generative algorithms, and cloud services. Uh, it is, has already amassed 83,000 followers, as of early Thursday morning, so what we're on now, Sunday, so um, probably a lot more, with, 11, with up to 11,000 viewers taking a look at any time. Um, what a world we're living in. It's, it's seeping into everything, this, this, this is weird... This like an iRobot sort of future that we're going to be living in soon. It's kind of happened so quick, because the first I kind of knew of it was that we don't do like weird paintings like last year. There was that Yes, and then Dali. Chat, uh, GPT came along about yeah. six months ago. Yeah, and then now they just seem to be able to put in, like, make a video with, I don't know, 
Jerry Seinfeld telling some Jerry Seinfeld jokes and it seems to be able to create a a deep fake with perfect voice tones and a that's creepy does it have a uh, a joke what's the deal with etc etc I would assume so I haven't watched it yet but maybe I will maybe I will try it later on because I do like Seinfeld it's the spur to maybe uh, maybe watch it it is a weird thing though and I (laughs) if they manage to make AI really good and, you know, really kind of understanding of human emotions and understanding of, like, writing techniques and all these things, will it get to a point where I'm pretty sure this will be distinguishable from a, you know, a real thing, but will it get to a point where it is indistinguishable and how quick will that happen? That's and then what the happens? scary thing. I mean, will it put people out of work? Yeah. If you're, if you're NBC and you want to make a sitcom, maybe you'll employ someone, to, a showrunner, to come up with a name and to format it. But after that, like, why would you hire a room of temperamental, expensive writers who complain about working hours and go on strike when they don't get healthcare and money and like to eat snacks and fart and things when you could just have one guy who inputs some data into a computer, presses a button and then takes the script to the actors it's a scary scary world we're living in i think yeah i do think i think actors will be fine well of course they need someone to perform it well in theory they could it could just create like cgi people and things but i think people will want to see real people. people will want to see real people but will they need to have this is actually quite an interesting philosophical question. So obviously the automation of things has always been happening. You know, the automation of like production lines and factories and it's, you know, always putting people out of work. But now this automation has moved into the creative fields. People are starting to get really worried about it all of a sudden because it might take creative jobs away. What about all the people that worked in the factories and what about all the people that did other things in the past? It's true. It's quite a deep philosophical question. Um it's weird to see how quickly it's moved along. Like uh, I was watching a Patton Oswald show from, I think, about 2007. And mm. he was talking about the saddest robots in the world. Have you seen these? These are the robots in the supermarket that you scan food on them. Like, and they say, 85 cents. for. And like, that's, that's not, <laughs> that's been around forever, hasn't it? But, you know, it, of course it hasn't. It's just, uh, you know, that when this show came out, it was only a year or so old. Yeah, I remember when they first did that. And, um, and again, I mean, how many... People used to be standing on tills at the front of supermarkets that, that aren't there anymore. What's what's the use of them now if you, you can just go and scan it yourself? Yeah, exactly. Scary. Scary, scary. Strange times. Anyway, on to more olden times. Yes. Yeah. Um. <laughs> Great segue. <laughs> Fantastic. Yeah. There once was a guy called Elvis. Uh, 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 shall I take this? On to our first movie. There was once a guy called Elvis. And did he have a moving pelvis? Elvis the pelvis, that some would call him. Some would. Um, he was a young boy from a poor family with a dad who'd been to jail. But he loved blues music. And he decided he was going to sing blues music to the world. And he met up with a guy called Tom. He was like, I know, I can sell your pelvis and your blues to the world, young boy. And together, they made millions. That's Very the, good, yes. That's the that's, Elvis that's, movie. That's sum up. <laughs> Elvis, of course, is the new Baz Luhrmann movie, uh, famous for Moulin Rouge and Strictly Ballroom and Great Gatsby. Uh, I kind of felt like this channeled The Great Gatsby probably the most of all of all of his movies and kind of felt more in tune with that. Um, I think it's the first biopic he's done. Australia was like, maybe wasn't really no, a biopic. Australia wasn't a biopic. No, it was kind of meant to, I suppose, I mean, it was meant to be about people, a real but, time. Yeah, but, but the not real people. Were, were fictional. Um, it's not a musical as such, but it is a, would you call it a jukebox movie? Um, I wouldn't just because it's, more it's closer to walk the line than it is to rocket man yeah exactly Uh, i would agree um and it is very baz lerman (laughs) it it feels very baz lerman particularly from the start of the movie and then maybe slightly less as the movie goes on but yeah i think that's all you guys need to know you know who elvis is if if you don't know who elvis is don't listen to my podcast like he's a person that everyone should know (laughs) (laughs) it's like saying hostile well like (laughs) 
I mean, anyone who hasn't heard the name Elvis, it would shock me. I don't you have to like him. I'm not saying you have to like him. But he's so ubiquitous. Or even know, yeah, he's and, so ubiquitous. He's yeah, like not knowing the colour purple. Yeah, deep into the uh, um, pop culture lexicon yeah. that you can't not know him. Exactly. Anyway, um, yeah, what did you think? Well, <laughs> the Baz Luhrmann stuff, you said that, you know, you, you summed it up there, that it starts very Baz Luhrmann and then it calms down. And that's very true because the first 15 minutes, there are swirling cameras and colours and neon and your eyes are being assaulted. And for the first 15 minutes, I was begging the movie to just calm <laughs> down. But luckily, unlike, say, something like The Great Gatsby, which was all Baz all the time, throughout and also something like moulin rouge which is all bad all the time but seems to work better you you, you don't mind that you're being assaulted i find i think it moulin works rouge. the moulin rouge because it's meant to be a stage thing exactly. it's not meant to be a biopic about someone's life exactly. um and but thankfully it does thankfully once it calms down it does and it plays by the rules of a fairly conventional biopic even if the one where the structure is a little bit odd because instead of being told from the point of view of the young man elvis it's told from his manager, Colonel Tom Parker, who is, of course, sums it up quite nicely. I am the, the snowman. I am the villain. Some people would say I am the villain of this here but, tale. But I am just a snowman. I, I make it snow. Elvis is one of my dancing chickens. And it's, it's a strange way to, <laughs> to frame your movie from the point of view of the objective villain. Um, but Baz has never been one to... <laughs> it's also kind of, kind of strangely done. Like, it starts off with Tom Parker in a hospital bed, jumping out of the hospital bed in a, in a hospital gown, going through a casino a gambling. And then actually and addressing just, the audience. Yeah, like, I'm... Some people think I'm the villain. Going around, like, yeah, pulling, using, pulling the, uh, um, the, the roulette machine. machine. Yeah, so it, in, a, in a hospital gown. So it's strange, but I think what's thankful, what's very thankful, is that after the first, let's say, 20 minutes or so, of telling it from the point of view of Colonel Tom Parker with all the swirling colours, it does calm down and it does tell a fairly conventional story about Elvis Presley. And, you know, your mileage will vary because there are some people for whom biopics just are dull, dull, dull because there's only so many times you can tell the same story. I kind of think you can't call this one dull. Well, quite. Um, for all its faults. For all, but there are some people, like, no matter how you frame it, no matter how you try to change up the rules, a biopic is just never going to be for them. And I'm not one of those people. I'm more agnostic. I mean, it really does depend on the quality of telling the same old story. But, Whereas I quite like a biopic. Yeah, I, 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 know, can be, I know you're... I can uh, be, like, sold by quite a bad... I mean, if, they, if it's, like... Um, uh, Bohemian Rhapsody bad, then I can't quite be sold by it, but I can be sold by it, a middling. A middling biopic works for you. And, and for me, it really does have to be a very good biopic for me to be swept along. Cause it, it's just not my thing, but I don't, I'm also not someone who really kind of detests it as well. And I think what really helps is that um, Austin Butler as Elvis is fantastic. He gets the voice, he gets the swagger, um, you know, his eyes are very soulful. He he really does play Elvis to within an inch of his life. So even when they are going through the steps, the conventional steps, because at, at some point I did think about, do you remember that sketch in Father Ted where they do the dress yeah. up? Yeah, well, I think we both turned to each other and did that. Yeah. <laughs> we were like, um... Elvis Presley was a truck driver from America. Then he went into the army. Then he got out. <laughs> and then he became the king of rock and roll. And it does tell the story in very yeah. kind of da 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 sort of steps. But... The um, kinetic camera work, after it's calmed down, it's too kinetic at the start. Oh, yeah. Too kinetic, but it, it never stops being kinetic. So the kinetic camera work and cinematography and the editing, uh, once it finds its rhythm after that first half an hour, it stops it from being just... Even if the scripts and story beats are very much just step by step by step by step by step. And then you have um, Austin Butler really selling it to you. And a good biopic does depend on the quality of its lead star. And I know that, Johnny, I know you, you especially are not a fan of Tom Hanks. Whereas I, I don't like him in this film, but I... I, I I, after a while, I just find fine. That's what he's doing. He's in horrible makeup and he's got a stick on rubber nose and he's doing, I am the villain of this here tale. And it's annoying, but I wasn't too bothered by it. And I know you were. But so fortunately, you have enough um, kinetic energy 
and fun and, of course, good music and a very commanding, very commanding central performance to kind of sell a very conventional tale. The Baz Luhrmann stuff after he just calms down a bit is actually a, a help rather than a hindrance. So uh, um, what did you think of Elvis? I think that Austin Butler should win the Oscar this year. I think his performance is absolutely stunning. I think he hits Elvis nail like on perfectly on like he's perfect. Like I couldn't imagine anyone better. And he elevates what is a massively flawed film to really enjoyable level. And I really enjoyed this film solely down to him. Tom Hanks is fucking appalling in this movie. <laughs> I know you were very happy it, it was, when he got a ra- two Razzie nominations. Yeah. Tom Hanks has had a terrible, terrible year. I like Tom Hanks. Everyone likes Tom Hanks. He has made two of my least favourite movies I've ever seen in my life and, and been the worst thing in both of them this year. Um, sorry, Elvis is not the worst film I've ever seen in my life, no, but, but the, he, the performance, performance, yeah. yeah. Um, it is hammy and dreadful but i will say that some of the problem with it is he was completely miscast he should not have been selected for that role like they should have got john goodman or something someone who fits that role better gone for a european actor well that quite possibly yeah absolutely um and so I, i give him a little bit of rope from that and that is one of the biggest flaws of the film is that he is a real intrinsic structural part of it and i'm like you know what get rid of him Let's just have it told. Let's let's go more walk the line, and we'll have it just told from Austin Butler's point of view. <laughs> we'll have it a bit more of a straight biopic here, and tell it from Austin's point of view. Now, I get it. That doesn't work for Baz Luhrmann. Baz Luhrmann has to have somebody who, like every single Baz Luhrmann film, has somebody telling the story as kind of a narrator that they kind of get bored of using halfway through and then remember that they need to use it at the end because that's what Baz Luhrmann likes to do. If you can't have someone telling a story from the past for five minutes at the start or Nick Carraway sitting in a mental institute back in the good old days with the green light at the end of the bridge, blah, 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 blah. Baz Luhrmann has to do that. Um, now, I really, I actually like Baz Luhrmann's directing. I... Apart from, um, again, I think one of the things with Baz Luhrmann is I don't think he's very good. Some, sometimes he really is bad at casting his kind of protagonist. I think that's good. Because there's uh, Austin Butler is not the protagonist in this. No, he's even billed second. It's Tom yeah. Hanks, Austin Butler. So Tom Hanks is the protagonist. Terrible. Nick Carraway, it, uh, um, Toby Maguire is not Nick Carraway. Toby Maguire is way too wet from Nick Carraway. And he seems to always pick a really good secondary... I mean, to be fair, you and McGregor, I'm sold on him. But but he always seems to pick a, a really good, like, secondary person who is kind of... who You know, who is the, the, would normally be the protagonist in something. Um, and they're interesting. And I always feel, get the feeling that he's more interested in the secondary person but still but uses the primary person as a way to tell the story is almost a crux and i think that's something that i've seen in a few of his movies it could also be said that he is someone who tells if if we're being quite honest if we scrub away the kinetic you know Baz Luhrmann direction his stories are fairly conventional yeah but he is a little bit afraid of being accused of such so he does a, a puts the bells and whistles on it bells and whistles on but he also okay how do how can i twist it at the start just to kind of almost trick people into mm. thinking that this isn't conventional. Like, oh, I can make Nick Carraway, he's in a mental institution. Ah, that's a fresh new take. Ah, I can tell this from the story, point of view of uh, Colonel Tom Parker, but only for the first 10 minutes, if we're being honest, and yeah. the last 10 minutes. But for the most part, it's a biopic, you know, straight, yeah. straight as an arrow. Um, he, he seems to but, almost like wrong-footing the audience. Not that there's anything wrong with that, but it's almost, it's a, it's a odd affectation that he has, that... If you're going to do outlandish and crazy, do outlandish and crazy. Mm-hmm. If you're going to be conventional, be conventional. But doing 10 don't minutes... Don't half-arse it. Don't half-arse it for five minutes just to go to make the audience go, what? Oh, I see, it's a conventional but biopic. But I, hands down, though, and, and this is someone who really enjoys the work of Baz Luhrmann, I would have much preferred this film if it was 
a straight, pretty much straight Austin Butler-led biopic with maybe the occasional twisting camera or, you know, for the glitz and glamour yes. and stuff, the, the cameras moving around and things works quite well. And I think it is for, what, 80% of the film? It's just he, Yeah, he, the he first 20 minutes and then there's a bit when he first arrives into Vegas as well, it goes a bit mad again for like 10 minutes. Like, I'm in Vegas, I'm in Vegas, all the lights, ah! And it's a bit like that for like 10 more minutes. But other than that, yeah, it is pretty straight biopic but then the, the the bit again as soon as tom parker's on the screen i'm a little bit like get on with it yeah. get on with it and then when austin butler's performing or austin butler's talking or going to bill street or speaking to his family and things i'm like yes this is what i want that was this very is very interesting and it told a more interesting tale about america at that time mm-hmm. it's prudishness it's fear of black people black music mm-hmm. and the influence of um black music on white people, white artists, white audiences. That's interesting. And then being accepted more for it and being kind of getting away with it, uh, uh, getting away with doing things that, you know, that, that, uh, yeah, you know. Rather than having Tom Parker go, I saw in the eyes of that girl when he moved his hips for the first time. Oh, my God, shut up. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) I don't want to hear this story from the eyes of Tom Parker. He's still my boy, he'll do what he's doing. Also, it's a little bit shady because, I mean, this... History knows Tom Parker is the villain. Yeah. To the point where it's almost a parody. Anytime you have a a shady manager type, we know who that's supposed to be a parody of. Why tell it from his point of view? A man who, someone who is so exploitative and dangerous and uh, filled him with drugs. It kind of gives him a bit of a pass almost, in a way. It doesn't quite let him off the hook, but it, it... it brings up a question of morality. If, you, if you're telling it from his point of view, you're mm-hmm. almost kind of giving him rope to hang himself mm-hmm. with, and that's not good. No. And then I don't think pull, they didn't pull it off as well. No. I don't think they really made him come out like necessarily the villain. He kind of, they, they gave him enough of a chance to explain away his, prob- you know, his, his, well, his misdeeds, shall we say. The other thing that I would say is the ending, they, they didn't stick the landing. I didn't think they did the last kind of, you know year of Elvis's life the real kind of descent I didn't think they they really did that very well and again I think that comes back to the whole Tom Parker thing I think they were letting Tom Parker explain it away as opposed to showing yes. it and and that so this is my cliff note kind of end of the end of my review part of the, it really there's an amazing central performance by Austin Butler and the middle two thirds of the film is great. Mm-hmm. I'd agree. But the first 25% and the last 5% of the film, mainly because of Tom Parker, are shit. And <laughs> because of Baz Luhrmann sticking all of his Bells and whistles, Luhrmann yeah. in that part. Um, but I think, that's, I think the problem is the most Baz Luhrmann part of it is Tom Parker and yes. his, all the stuff around him and... That is, and again, that maybe is where the the, the performance isn't necessarily one hundred percent Tom Hanks's fault that it's so bad. It's that he was very poorly directed at that that twenty five thirty percent of the film. And he had to be stuck in, you know, quite yeah. horrible makeup. Uh, speaking of makeup, uh, one thing I was thankful for, and this is a debate that's going to come back because uh, of the film The Whale and discussions about the how ethical it is to Mm. stick actors in fat suits. Of course, Tom Hanks is stuck in a fat suit for most of this film. But one thing I was a little bit thankful for is that even when they said, oh, Elvis is gaining loads of weight, they didn't stick Austin Butler. They 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 just just did it with a bit of face makeup and making him a bit sweaty and stuff. And then only for the last five minutes when it recreates his last concert and they put a uh, 70s grainy film filter Mm. over. So even though he is in a, a fat suit for a little bit, it's... It's, it's not a cartoonish it's one not either, cartoonish, is it? And it's hidden by enough things, and they've hold it off for enough time that mm. is it okay? You got away with that. But I think almost think that again goes and shows exactly my point about what's good and bad about this movie. They were quite happy to do that with Tom Parker. They <laughs> like they they did it for the whole movie. But when it came to Elvis, they they did it well. And I think that's it for an Elvis biopic. They got Elvis perfect. Like they you couldn't I couldn't have imagined them doing the Elvis bit of the film better but if but a lot of the stuff around that is very heavy tom parker heavy and goes back almost to that one you know before when we were doing the wrong kid like the stuff with the family that's all very kind of like tacked on and yes. again uh, you know they're all manipulated by tom parker and shown as being spineless and da, da, da. but again they, they they never really 
they they hint at their lives, but they never really, you know, give a 360 view of that and, and stuff. So the the core of the film and the core performance is excellent. And I really, really enjoyed it. But it, it but the bits at the end are a mess and it just doesn't work. Yeah, I'd agree. Um, but having said that, I'd still probably watch it again. I'd I enjoyed the central performance that I'd much. Very much recommend it. It's certainly worth a watch. Yeah. Cool. I think that is... That wraps it up wraps for that one. Um, now uh, we're on to their second film, which is... After a commercial break. Yes, sorry. Commercial Come break. on. Come we've on, got get it right. Do, we've got to pay for these microphones and this electricity <laughs> with the no money we get from these adverts. We'll be back in a moment. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. And welcome back, everybody. I hope that you enjoyed the thing that they were selling to you. I'd buy it for a dollar. I'd buy it for ten. It's, that's a Robocop reference. Mm. I'd buy that for a dollar. Um, yeah. Oh, you, you did get it. I did get it. Okay, it's also good. just a general saying. It yeah. is. Anyway, on <laughs> from that. Is on... it time for the magic? Or reintroduction of the magic? Well... I think the magic was in the advert, personally. Oh, yes, it, it was really magical. Absolutely. Anyway, um, on to our second movie of the week. And what was the second movie we watched, Callum? And the second movie is Love and Mercy. So this film is about two chunks of the life of Brian Wilson. So the first part takes place in the mid-60s. Uh, during the creation of Pet Sounds, the album which arguably is one of the best albums of all time. Um, it's, some would say the best. Yeah, some, I know someone I'm, at this I'm table. I'm fairly convinced that it is number one on the like album on charts the, of all time. Big, like, all the big lists, yeah. let's say. But yes, it's certainly, certainly up there as one of the most respected albums of all time. And it also depicts a um, the worsening mental health state of Brian Wilson as he's creating that album. And in that section, he is played by uh, Paul Dano, who we've recently seen in the new Batman film as the Riddler. And then it jumps to the 80s as Brian Wilson is now middle-aged and he's been played by John Cusack. And it's at a point where his mental health has deteriorated quite severely to the point where actually linking it to Elvis, he is being manipulated by a outside party so in this case it's his doctor dr eugene landy who is again is one of the big villains in rock and roll history uh for his manipulation of brian wilson and the money that he took from him and forcing him to create music when he really really wasn't in the states to create music and it's in this section that we're introduced to melinda ledbetter played by elizabeth banks who it's a little bit of a contentious figure, figure. not necessarily, oh, certainly not a villain, but um, her story is certainly, uh, from what I understand, quite exaggerated. And in this part of the story, it's about how she pulls Brian Wilson out from the control of Eugene Landy, although I understand that rock and roll enthusiasts and, and uh, um, Beach Boys enthusiasts are, you know, a little bit, wobbly on whether or not or how much she did help so uh johnny as someone who i know is a big huge beach boys fan and especially a big brian wilson fan and a huge pet sounds fan what did you think of love and mercy do you know what i actually think it's a really good film to compare with elvis because i think it has a similar issue i think 
the central... So, the, as you said, there's two Bryans, a younger and an older one. Um, both actually played pretty well, in my opinion. Um, John Cusack playing the older, Paul Dano playing the younger. But the older Brian Wilson is used as a framing device for the the, the kind of the younger Brian Wilson. And the younger Brian Wilson kind of maybe kind of shows you why the older Brian Wilson is like he is now. And I think the the young Brian Wilson, played by Paul Dano, is dead on perfection. I, I genuinely think that that part of the film is a 10 out of 10 movie. It is so well done. I like how it's shot and how it looks. Um, the recording sessions were dead on. It's quite interesting looking at what the, the various Beach Boys said and... Um, Pretty much all of them said, yeah, that's basically how I remember it. The only one who was contentious was Mike Love because he says he never shouted at Brian Wilson, but I've heard the opposite. <laughs> but other than that, they pretty much all said, no, that, that segment is dead on. Um, but I think the segment around it is maybe not quite as good. I think John Cusack is very good, and I think he gets kind of the vibe of Brian being quite childlike and, and stuff very well. I actually think Paul Giamatti is excellent uh, in it. He's just, I mean, he is just playing Paul Giamatti. But it's a very cartoony figure. But from what I understand, that's what he's like. Eugene Landy was quite a cartoony it, super villain. It's quite interesting actually. When Brian Wilson saw it, he said he was scared for ten minutes when when the, the character came up. He said it really brought the emotions up and really made him feel like it was what Eugene Landy was like. Um, but yeah, the big biggest contention is from the other members of the family. Uh, are, will they argue that they had a bigger, if not the main role, in, in rescuing, rescuing him? Uh, it's not that that Melinda, um, you know, wasn't around in that yeah. bit, and it wasn't that Eugene didn't try and get them to break up and do all these things. Um, but you know, she wasn't the, the sole reason. Which is, it's not necessarily portrayed that she is the sole reason because. I mean, she certainly tries calling people in order to... Yeah, so that and they, they kind of knock something. him away and then it, then it seems to... Then she goes away for a bit and then he gets out and, it, you know... I guess more so exaggerated is probably a better yeah. word. But I... This is, and then this is where a problem slightly comes in. Obviously, Brian Wilson is still alive. Obviously, Melinda Lebedee is still alive. Um, luckily, Eugene Landry's not. Um, but because of that kind of situation and them still being alive, there's either two ways you go. You go down the route of making a massively unauthorised biopic, which has nothing to do with them, and then you always struggle to get the rights for the music and things. They've gone another way. They've gone down the way of getting the, them to be involved. And obviously to get involved, they've, you, know, you can tell they've manicured around the edges to get the story they want told, told. I'm not necessarily saying they had like full creative control and, and and stuff, and it doesn't sound like they did. They certainly didn't have like final cut or anything on it. But I do think that maybe they told that story in a simplified kind of way that maybe doesn't work. It's a more conventional narrative, certainly, because yeah. you need a hero, which is Melinda, rather than what in real life was probably a group many of heroes, people, yeah. groups of people. Well, so, of which she was probably of which one. She was certainly one. We're certainly not trying to slander no. uh, Melinda here. She was probably very much and they're still married in uh, so, saving Brian Wilson, but so too probably with the rest of the family. Yeah, but actually, overall, I think it does a very good job of telling their lives in a very truthful way. I think both the central performances are very good. And actually, a little side note, I really love what Atticus Ross did with the soundtrack and the, the way that works and the way that, like, when there's kind of certain, like, dream, or dreams on word, but kind of seek certain sequences, taking little bits of the music and putting that in and the soundscape that he created. I like how it's shot. So I, I do think overall it does a really good job of telling that story and as a whole nuts and bolts film, I think it works really well. Yes, I I'd certainly agree uh, that I agree that uh, the first, oh, sorry, not the first, but the younger section is excellent. And the second section or the older section is good. It's, mm. it's not like you have one half good, one half bad, uh, a bad film and a good film. You have an excellent film and a pretty good film. Mm. And so overall, it makes for a very excellent package. I was looking up the director. His name is Bill Pollard. If you don't know who that is, it's because this is literally the only thing he's directed. Interesting. Um, he's a 
big producer in Hollywood. He's had executive producer credits on things like Brokeback Mountain and loads and loads of things. So he's very much a, a big player in Hollywood. But as a director, this was his clearly a passion project of his. But what that means is, is that it's directed in a very standard way. And in this instance, I'm quite glad that it is. It's very much, very much a point and click, you know, no flashy camera moves, no no sort of flashy editing. It's yeah. very much told in a, someone who is directing a film for the first time, quite standard, unflashy, meat and potatoes direction. And I think in a way that serves the film because you get the performances to tell the story and deliver it. Um, I would say slightly in his defence, I do think there's some interesting editing in the, the older sects, the, the, the young Brian, the, the 60s sections. Certainly when he's... Um, when he's recording Smile and stuff and, and, and slightly descending into madness. Into the madness. So I was very impressed with the sound editing and the sound mixing during the... There's a point where his um, mental illness is being accentuated by the sound at a dinner party of the sound of knives and forks mm. clattering on a plate and they get louder and louder and louder. And that, that was very impressive. I actually think that's on the soundtrack though i think that's natchez ross thing oh really yeah. okay well um well whoever it was it was a very uh, good decision uh, i also liked it, watching the film for a second time because i saw it in cinemas when it came out and this is only the second time i've seen it i appreciated john cusack more because i remember at the time it was a big kind of lots of uh, discussion was had about how good paul dano was and there were some people who kind of quite dismissed john cusack's section and I found myself very moved this time. There, there, were, there was a moment where he was begging uh, Melinda to leave now, but don't leave him. And I, I, I think this might even be the last time I've seen something with John Cusack in that was really excellent before he truly descended into straight-to-DVD easy money, which is pretty much his bread and butter these days. And I can't think of the last time. I think this might be the last time where he was truly excellent. And there was a moment right at the end, just before he gets rescued, where he's in a recording studio and uh, he's talking to Melinda and he's talking about, there's no hope, I can't get out. I, actually, I teared up um, and I, I didn't realise just how good his section was, at least from an acting point of view, because I just remember here, his section being not quite as good. And it is not quite as good. It's not quite as interesting. And I'd even not even necessarily call it a biopic because it's not telling a nuts and bolts uh, he was born he did this and then he created that album and then he did that if it was a nuts and bolts biopic the section on pet sounds would be an important 10 minutes but the film is so much better for that being a whole half of the movie and his section with eugene landy would have been an important 20 half an hour or something like that instead of being a whole half of the movie, the film is so much better for it being two sections just about that thing. I think that's what it does really well, is that it um, it picks out probably... It's a bit like the Steve Jobs movie, actually, in the setting structure, in that it picks out the kind of probably two most formulative periods of his life, certainly one creatively and one, you know, that, that led on to the rest of it. So they pick the period where... And obviously there is a little bit more than just creating pet sounds. There is the showing him having his first initial nervous breakdowns and things and coming off the road and going to record in the studio. And then it kind of focuses predominantly on pet sounds um, and the production of that. And then as his mental illness gets worse, the the kind of going into trying to make good vibrations and then smile. Um, and again, that is, a, you know, it shows that shows his kind of creative peak followed by his descent into madness. And then they kind of went, well, actually, we don't need this whole kind of 10 years of him being in bed for three years and then starting off with Eugene. We need the bit of him where he gets freed. And then actually, if anyone who knows his career afterwards, had a bit of a creative resurgence and, you know, finished Smile Off and, and produced a couple of other, like Lucky Old Son and a couple of other albums and things afterwards and even did some later stuff with the Beach Boys um, and kind of re-toured with them and toured by himself and he... he, he uh, you'd like this, with a power pop group from LA called The Wonderments, um, used to go touring with his own stuff. Um, and again, I think, like, you, you almost don't need to know every single part of... Elvis was born, <laughs> and then Elvis had a... went in the army, and that you don't need to know all that. You and need then he to went know, the army, yeah. and then he got out. The most interesting parts are the most interesting creative part of his life, and then how that kind of turned into something bad and became the other part, and, and it did a very good job of... Of, of doing that and I think that is something and it's it's a nice length as well it's like it's under two hours quite 
once you take the you know the credits and things off, probably about an hour and forty five minutes, I Roughly, reckon. Yeah, which is a nice length. Like, how many biopics do that? Every biopic, he's had a bloody long life and has done a lot of stuff in it. Like, Pet Sounds was their eleventh album. He'd made eleven albums, but that's how he made <laughs> Pet Sounds, and they made quite a lot of albums afterwards, even when he was having mental health issues and things. So, you know, and he'd spent the first you know, five years of their career touring with them. And they and they went, you know, well, we don't need all of this. This stuff can be shown in very quick montages and then let's get into the meat of it. And I think that does a really good job of that and picking that out. And oh, it's certainly... Almost agree. being a mood piece in a way. Yeah, I'd certainly agree. And I'd appreciate if more films about important people did that and mm. picked important moments and focused on that. I also want to mention that um, a lot of biopics and a lot of uh, films about musicians conflate mental illness and genius, uh, almost to say that... This person was mentally ill and it wasn't good, but without it, there'd be no genius. And there's a great line in the film Frank where um, the uh, Donald Gleason character is saying to Frank's parents, oh, I wish I was uh, mentally ill, then I could be a genius. And and Frank's parents say, no, if anything, the mental illness stunted the genius. And so few films kind of take that approach. This is a rare exception where it shows that just how creatively emotionally stunting a oncoming and onset mental illness can be like you know it it totally cut the knees out from under brian wilson and you know imagine if he had made smile when you know he he wanted to rather than releasing it 30 years later or something and i I was very appreciative of the fact that they didn't conflate those two things and it's such a rare thing yeah such a rare thing for films about real life people yeah, no, and I think it, yeah, it, it did a good job of showing that, and a good job of showing how actually when he was at his, you know, most mentally ill, he was his least creative at the end of the day when you know when he was under Landry, and but also showing it did a, a reasonable job. Again, it didn't go into it into too much depth, but it showed it, it showed why he went to those places. That I mean, at the end of the day, he's quite a sensitive, childlike person, and. It, the, the later John Cusack version of him shows that just as well as the younger Paul Dano version of him shows that. And obviously a lot of that came from partially from his dad being a monster mm-hmm. and partially from kind of a bit of arrested adolescence that comes from being like 16, 17 and being called almost a genius for genius musician who... Because he, he always was the person that wrote the music for the band and he... Carl was the older brother. Carl was the older brother, I want to say. Dennis was the younger brother and he was the middle brother and they were in there you know, I think late to mid-teens to kind of going down the line. So that you're never going to turn out quite normal if you've got not a great home life anyway and then you're given, like, the keys to the kingdom at the age sure. of, like, 17, 18, whatever. So I think it does a good job of, of kind of showing the, the foundations and the groundwork and how that all works. There's, again, there's a great line in it, that like, when he says about his first wife and how kind of... He's sad that it didn't work out and how she saved him, but they were just he was horrible to her because they were just kids when they met and she was 16 and he was like 18 and, you know, uh, yeah. It's a, and it's a very sad story. I also am very appreciative of the fact that I'm really not a fan of this era of deep fakes to make young people look young, like uh, the Irishman. You know, you get an old, waddling Robert De Niro, yeah. but with a, a plastic-like face. face. Shiny. And people are so like, oh... John Cusack doesn't look like Paul Dano. And to my response to that, doesn't like, matter. who cares? Yeah. It doesn't it's matter. It's the vibe right. It's the vibe right. It's the performance right. It's supposed to be about suspension of disbelief. I would much prefer to see a film like this, even with actors that don't sound or look anything alike, mm-hmm. but are right for that period of the film. That's, that's what I want. And yeah. I, I think I'm glad that this film is around because it's probably one of the last times that we'll see a younger and an older person being played like this. Some people would say we were picking up good vibrations from it. Hey! I'm here all night, try the veal. <laughs> Tip your waitress. Anyway, um, yeah, I think that wraps up our reviews of both movies really well. So, Calamalot, what did you... <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> what, did, what score and what did you think of Elvis... Mostly very, very liked it. Very liked it? Very, very much liked, liked it. it. We've, we, we know speak English at the end of this podcast. Yeah, we're getting to that point in the evening. Um, it's a conventional biopic when it calms down, and that's fine. I'm, I'm not, not a problem for me, but there are some people for whom that is a problem. 
Um, and thankfully, if the film and the performance is good enough, I, I don't have a problem with that. The first 20 minutes and the last five minutes, as we mentioned, were very annoying. But luckily for mostly of a two-hour-plus film, it does calm down to tell a conventional story and led by a very compelling leading man. He's not my choice for best actor this year. Um, I, I, I'm, ho- I'm rooting for Colin Farrell. But... He's, I haven't seen Manchies yet, in fairness, so no, you know, that might fair. change. Um, but he is certainly deserving of the nomination, and uh, he's certainly at the moment, I think, my second choice. But, the, you know, a conventional biopic is never going to be the thing for me uh, unless it's exceptionally well told. And this is okay told, uh, but the, it is picked up by a great performance. So I think a 7 out of 10 for me. So if I was rating it on the, t- the movie Tom Hanks is in... <laughs> It would be a four out of ten for me, I think. If I was rating it on the film Austin Butler was in, it would be a nine out of ten. So I'm gonna agree with you and say seven. I think it, it's it's compelling, it's enjoyable. I would definitely say watch it, but it is a mess, and most of that mess is Colonel Tom Parker. Some would say I'm the villain of this here tale. I would agree. <laughs> Certainly the villain of the movie. Yeah. <laughs> And uh, for Love and Mercy. Well, I was very moved by this and it improved on a rewatch. And uh, I think like you, the, the, the section with Paul Dano is excellent. And the section with John Cusack is good. And together they make a, a very strong 8 out of 10 for me. And I noticed on Metacritic it has a straight 80 and it sounds, yeah, to me, mm. 80, or between 7 and 8, just sounds absolutely perfect. So 8 out of 10, um, because even the stuff that wasn't quite as compelling during the John Cusack section, I think the most moving moments were in the John Cusack section. So that picked it up for me, and the stuff with uh, Paul Dano, who was absolutely terrific. And it was fascinating to see the creation of Pet Sounds uh, made wrapped it up for a, a nice 8 out of 10. So yeah, this is the third time I've seen it. So in the cinema with you, I think. Good. Um, and when it first came out, which shockingly was nine years ago. Oh, 2014. Nine years ago. Good Where Lord. has that time gone? Um, and then uh, I and then I watched it again. It must have been a few years ago because we watched it. I watched it on BBC iPlayer, and when I went to go and put my BBC iPlayer on, um, it was it remembered why. Where the credits were coming up when I first clicked on it. <laughs> so I th- I've got a feeling I've watched it in this house. So it's probably within the last two and a half years. Um, and I remember the first time I saw it, I remember actually almost, and I like Elizabeth Banks, but I remember quite disliking that part of the film almost. I remember thinking John Cusack was all right. And I remember really enjoying the Paul Dano bits of the film, just wanting the whole film to be that. And then the second time I watched it, I enjoyed it more consistently through. And then actually this time, I actually think the the... The John Cusack bit um, has aged very well. I think at the time, and you know, like Beach Boys super fan. Oh, it's incorrect. Ah, <laughs> but actually, <coughs> watching it at a more kind of um, uh, new, you know, I actually think it's a more nuanced performance, and I, I uh, than, than than maybe initially that I thought. So again, I think I work with you. I think it's a good section and an excellent section and i think the excellent section almost approaching five star maybe or almost approaching 10 out of 10 probably around a nine and i think the other bit is a you know reasonable six out of ten it would still be a watchable movie there's still considerably worse biopics out there than the, the other movie that's there so again i think i probably actually would agree with you and come out <laughs> with an eight so rare recurrence we've agreed with numbers on both films but yeah eight Perfect. out of ten so no both films watch um elvis joint seven out of ten and um uh, and uh, love and mercy a eight out of ten so uh, and as i said for those in the uk love and mercy is currently on the iplayer so go watch it for free until next week we will someday meet again <laughs> very vague follow i was gonna go into a like a dennis wilson song uh and then i thought no one other no than one's gonna get you maybe get you it. will have heard it so um, I then quickly jumped out of that. <laughs> you yeah. aborted it. Absolutely. <laughs> anyway, thanks a lot, guys, Thank and you. have a great week. And we will see speak to you soon. See you around. Bye-bye. Bye bye. 
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.